0: Matthew chapter 26, our our topic today is a very important topic, avoiding temptation. Avoiding temptation. And the way to avoid temptation, as we'll see, is not to enter into temptation. We'll see that. And um, I'm going to begin reading it... uh, verse 36. Then Jesus came and said to them, came to a place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with to him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he went a little farther, fell on his face and prayed, saying, oh my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? You could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. And we'll stop there. One of the striking things about our about our Lord is his love and concern for his disciples. Three times as he is suffering in the garden and he's praying and watching himself, he goes to his disciples to admonish them to watch and pray with him. Now think about this. If you're on your deathbed and you have your adult children come with you, what are you going to say to them right before you die, you you know, spiritually? You're concerned about their welfare spiritually. Well, Jesus is about to be betrayed literally within an hour or so, and he's about to go to the, the cross. And this is really his last imperative in teaching to them. And this is what he says. Verse 41, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. As we examine this text, there are are a number of things that we need to consider. Number one, how do these imperatives apply to the disciples in the immediate context? Number two, why is watching and praying necessary for the Christian? Number three, what does it mean to enter into temptation And number four, what are some specific things that Scripture requires us to watch and be on guard for? And number five, why and how is prayer connected to watching and fighting against temptation? Now, I don't know if we're going to get to all these this morning. We might have to deal with some of this later. Number one, the commands here, the imperatives, are in the present continuous tense. Keep on watching. Keep on praying. It's to be an attitude of the Christian. You're always to be watching against temptation and you're always to be praying not to enter into temptation. And of course, that's part of the Lord's Prayer. Protect us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. And these are given to the disciples almost immediately before the arrest and trial of Jesus. During this time of bold persecution, the disciples could be placed uh, in situations where they would be... Strongly tempted to deny the Savior in order to save their own souls, and we know what's going to happen with Peter. In fact, at the arrest of Jesus, and this is verse 56 to 26, all the disciples forsook him and fled. They got out of dodge, they were afraid. And a little later, Peter will deny Christ three times, verses 69 to 75. Interestingly, Our Lord told the Apostles of the Last Supper only a few hours before that in accordance with prophecy, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will will be scattered. And that's also in Mark 14.27 and of course uh, 26.31 of Matthew. Jesus also told Peter of his coming, threefold denial Mark 14, 30, and Matthew 26, 34. Therefore, we must view these imperatives as warnings to be spiritually on guard and pray for God's assistance not to betray the Son of God at this crucial hour. That's the immediate context. Now, obviously, it has a broader context. Christ's warning has to do with the temptation to abandon the cause of the kingdom of God, to backslide, and move toward apostasy. Watch, pray. Don't let this happen to you. Be on guard. Jesus, who had been successfully waging war against the kingdom of Satan, for example, Mark one seven eight and three twenty seven, where by inference Jesus is understood as the one stronger than the strong man Satan, now anticipates a fearful counter offensive. The Savior repeatedly warned his disciples because of their beha- behavior. Um, if they do not truly understand the great spiritual danger they are about to face, they should be watching and praying instead of sleeping. And of course, we know that first generation of Christians was a time of special persecution and a time of special opposition by Satan. The persecution of Christians didn't end in the Roman Empire for another 250 years. And then it briefly came back with Justin, uh, Justin the Apostate, or whatever his name was. Now, uh, what is particularly interesting regarding our Lord's warning is that it proves the full responsibility of secondary agencies in God's providential dealings with men. Now, Jesus obviously knew of the prophecies about the coming failure of the apostles, for he quotes Zechariah 13.7 at the Holy Supper. He also had just prophesied in amazing detail the fall of Peter. He does everything he can to lift the apostles out of their spiritual stupor and prepare them for the coming conflict. He knew what sore temptations were about to assail them so we would have them doubly armed by watching unto prayer. So that's the immediate context. Number two. After our Lord commanded his disciples to watch and pray, he gives us a distinct reason why such spiritual exercises are necessary. Christ says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Matthew twenty six forty one, Mark thirteen uh, fourteen thirty eight. Now, by spirit, Jesus simply means the human spirit, soul, or mind of the disciples. The disciples in their hearts were willing to do their duty. They wanted to watch and pray with the Savior, and they even expressed a willingness to die if necessary. Matthew twenty six thirty five and Mark fourteen thirty one. Thus, in his explanation of the disciples' failure to watch, Christ gives them the praise of willingness in order that their weakness may not throw them into despair. Yet he urges them to prayer because they are not sufficiently endued with the power of the Holy Spirit. Our Lord corrects these erring disciples graciously and gently as a loving father does his own children. Now, this admonition this admonition should not be viewed as an excuse for fear, but rather as a reason for diligence. And Paul talks about this in Romans seven. If if we could press a button and never sin ever again, all of us would press it immediately with authority. We would do so immediately. But we have to battle the flesh. The term flesh, Sarex in this context, is viewed by most commentators as not simply the fleshly part of man, but as the whole nature of man weakened by the fall. (coughs) Flesh is here meant is a human nature considered from the aspect of its frailty and needs both physical and psychical. So Jesus' warning includes the disciples' physical weaknesses, mental exhaustion, and emotional strain that caused him to fall asleep. Now interestingly, the term flesh in Scripture is often used to describe the frailty and weakness of men and animals in contrast to God, who is powerful and unchanging. Now, the Egyptians, for example, this is Isaiah thirty-one three. Now, the Egyptians are men and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. Here's another one, Jeremiah 17.5. Cursed is the man who trusts the man and makes flesh his strength. The question that naturally arises regarding the term flesh, or sarks is... Does this term in this context merely refer to the flesh as weakened by the fall? Human weakness. <coughs> Excuse me. In a non-moral sense, or does it have the meaning we often so find in Paul's epistles that the term flesh Sarx refers to a sinful pollution or corruption of human nature as a result of the fall? According to Paul, flesh is the seat of sinful lust which wage war against the spirit. The apostle warns believers in Romans 7 about the sin that dwells in us, verse 17. The flesh, verse 18, or lust, verses 8, 7 to 8. The law of sin in our members, verse 23. He says that our corrupt nature, our sinful inclinations, draw us towards the evil, what is evil, and wars against the law of our minds, verse 29. In our mind, that is informed by scripture, we know what the truth is, we know what we ought to be doing, and we want to obey that. But because of the weakness of our flesh, our sinful flesh, we often find ourselves doing things that we hate. Paul talks about that in Romans 7. We don't want to do them. And yet we end up doing them at times. Here's verses 15 to 17 of Romans 7. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Almost all commentators believe that Christ's phrase, the flesh is weak, verse 41 in Mark 14, 38, refers not to moral depravity, but rather simply to weakness related to fatigue. In favor of this interpretation, they note that Jesus contrasts not the sinful flesh against the Holy Spirit as does Paul, but the human spirit's determination to do the right thing, which in the immediate context is impeded by falling asleep. However, even if physical and mental weakness which leads to sleep is The only culprit our Lord had in mind in this particular admonition, we must not forget that by way of application, it certainly applies to the term flesh in the Pauline sense. And for the sake of our edification, I think that's the way we should view the weakness of the flesh here. We can say this for the following reasons. A. The disciples are commanded to watch and pray against temptation. The threat they face is a failure to endure in a time of trial. Therefore, just as the command to stay alert and watch has clear spiritual connotations—that is, they are not just uh, physically but also spiritually alert—they're there to be physically and spiritually alert. The weakness of the flesh that leads to the slumber does, does also. Indeed, sleeping becomes a metaphor in the New Testament for giving into the sinful flesh and leading a wicked lifestyle. First Thessalonians five six to seven, and also Ephesians five fourteen. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So, yeah, they were physically tired. Yes, they were falling asleep. It was late. But clearly, it's a metaphor for spiritual alertness and spiritual stupor. And then B. The greatest impediment to our spiritual faithfulness is not the desire for physical sleep, but our fleshly natures. Because of the remaining effects of the fall upon us, spiritual exercises are often laborious and difficult. Our spirits are willing, but we are constantly find ourselves swimming upstream against our own carnal desires. The unregenerate man experiences no struggle because he happily float, follows his own fallen inclinations. He, uh, so to speak, swims downstream following his sinful flesh. He gladly swims down the stream of his own lusts, but we struggle against the stream of our carnal nature. Paul warns us regarding this conflict in Galatians 5.17. For the flesh lusts or sets its desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The reason that we must watch and pray is that our lives are like a violent war. The reason that watching and praying is so important and necessary to the Christian life is because we are in a continual lifelong struggle with the flesh, the body of sin, or the old man. Which represents all the corrupt principles, propensities, lusts, and passions of our fallen nature. If we didn't have to deal with that, being a Christian would be the easiest thing in the world. But it's a constant struggle your whole life. And number three, Jesus instructs the disciples to watch and pray lest they enter into temptation. What does it mean to enter into temptation? And this is a great focus of what we're going to discuss. In order to answer this question properly, we need to consider A. The meaning of the Greek word for temptation. B. What entering into temptation does not mean. C. Biblical expressions that describe entering temptation. And D. The meaning and expression in the context of our Lord's instructions. The Greek word for temptation, the noun is peresmon, or the verb perēsin, have two different yet related meanings. When the word is used to describe God's activity towards his people, it refers to a testing or a proving. Not a tempting or a soliciting unto sin. God doesn't tempt man unto sin, James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. James 1.13. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 8.2 and 16 use the same Greek word to describe Israel's period of testing in the wilderness. It was a test! God wanted them to obey. It was for their good. Moses' covenant renewal preaching in Deuteronomy chapters 1 through 11 presents the wilderness wanderings as a time of testing to prepare the covenant people for nationhood in Canaan. Testing by God must always be viewed by believers as something positive, something to help you mature as a Christian. Our life is one of trials and tribulations, and sometimes we do the wrong thing, but if we learn from it, we repent, we grow. We grow in grace, we grow in knowledge. The next time when something like that comes up, we know not to what we know not to what to do and what the right thing to do. Jehovah sends us trials and tests to mature us, to cause us to grow in sanctification. In Genesis 22, God tested Abraham in order to show the genuineness of his faith and help bring it toward perfection. We're taught that explicitly, of course, that's Genesis 22, 1 to 18, but we're taught that explicitly in James 2, 21 to 23. Was it a struggle for Abraham? Yes. But he endured the test. He obeyed the word of God. And he was sanctified. Now, the word parisman in its purely negative sense refers to a direct and actual solicitation to do evil. Temptation by Satan or a pagan would entail a direct request, prodding, urging, or arguing to commit a sin or sins against God. Here, here's some drugs. I want you to take these drugs. Oh, here, you should fornicate with me. Uh, God won't mind. (laughs) You should... Uh, do this, you should do that. They're all solicitations to commit a sin against God. That's satanic. This is what the devil did with Eve in the garden and Christ in the desert. Temptation can refer to anything, whether a person or thing or place, state, way or condition, that upon any account whatsoever has a force or efficacy to seduce, to draw the mind and heart away from God away from the obedience God requires of them into any degree of sin whatsoever. The reason that God cannot tempt or entice a person to sin is that it would be contrary to God's nature, which is infinitely holy, just, and good. God wants you to be holier. God wants you to grow in grace. God wants you to be a more sanctified believer. God wants you to be more obedient unto the word. Although God does not tempt us to sin, this reality does not mean that God does not sovereignly lead us into conflicts with evil that we would consider temptations. Our God and Father may for wise ends which shall ultimately subvert, uh, subserve his own glory and our prophet lead us into positions where Satan, the world and the flesh may tempt us. Christ was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. However, God in no sense leads men into temptation as to have any share in the blame of their sin if they fall into it. The devil tempts men that he may ruin them. God tries men or tests men and puts them where Satan may try them, but he leads them into temptation for probation that the chaff may be sifted from the wheat, that the dross may be separated from the fine gold. And you're led into a more obedient holy lifestyle. As you mature and your faith is tested, your faith becomes more solid and more reliable. Now, some may argue the terms trial or test as opposed to temptation are words without a real distinction. While these words are obviously closely related, it is important that we should uphold the distinction that Scripture makes between God's testing a person and the devil tempting someone. This distinction upholds God's nature and character, preserves his absolute sovereignty, and explains how we can pray, lead us not into temptation, Matthew 6, 9. The Pelagian or crass Arminian who argues that God has no control over evil actions whatsoever, if consistent, could not even pray the Lord's Prayer. God is sovereign over all affairs, even bad things that happen. However, God does not directly tempt anyone to sin, nor is he in any way responsible for evil. We are valid secondary agents. If you sin, it's your fault. be. In order to better understand the expression enter into temptation, it will be helpful to first identify what it does not mean. It does not refer to common everyday temptations that accompany our lives. Temptation in general is comprehensive of our whole warfare, as our Lord calls the time of his ministry the time of his temptation, Luke 22:28). 28. We have no promise that we will not be tempted at all, nor are we to pray for an absolute freedom from temptations. If we were not to be tempted at all, we would have to leave this world altogether. Wouldn't we? Papists, under the influence of asceticism, put men in monasteries and women in convents far away from the world, and that was supposed to shield them from temptation. It did not. They, of course, soon discovered that temptations accompanied them behind the stone walls because their hearts and their lusts could not be left outside the fortifications and the monks were having sex with the nuns. And we know that, and they found... they were committing infanticide, and so they they found in excavations in places like France and stuff that they they were having secret rendezvous with the nuns. That's why men are supposed to get married. That's why celibacy is so wicked, because it forces people into extra temptation. Therefore, entering into temptation is something more than just simple regular temptation itself. (coughs) It is a temptation or trial so great that it ensnares a believer to the point that he may fall into sin. Also, it does not mean to be conquered by temptation. A man may enter in temptation and yet not fall into temptation, fall under temptation. God may make a way for a man to escape or conquer such an ens- ensnarement. Jesus entered a temptation in the wilderness, Mark four, uh, Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 4, and again in Gethsemane, yet he prevailed over it. Therefore, entering into temptation must not be confused with entering into sin. Jesus was tempted severely, more than we were ever, ever have been. And yet he did not yield one at one bit. He, he, he went through it perfectly. And then C there are a number of biblical expressions that can help us understand what it means to enter temptation, to enter into temptation. Paul warns Timothy, saying, Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare. 1 Timothy 6.9 The expressions fall into and piptusin," and snare, pegas," are used figuratively to describe circumstances that trap a man in a strong temptation. We may picture a man who's walking in the woods, he falls into a pit, and is trapped in the pit. You may have seen that in movies or whatever where there's a very deep pit with smooth walls, and a man falls in and it's 20 feet and he can't get out. He is entangled and he does not know how to escape. We find a similar expression in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. The image here is of a man overtaken and held fast by a beast of prey. The Apostle Peter tells a, per- a persecuted church, Second Peter two nine, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations. <clears throat> the immature is a man trapped in a mire or locked in a cell, and such a person needs God to deliver him out of such a dire situation. And then D. The context of our Lord's injunction to the apostles supports our contention that entering into temptation is something much more serious and dangerous than everyday temptations the imperatives are given to the disciples because they were about to enter into the temptation of persecution. At this time, they were especially vulnerable because they they would not have the presence of the Savior to uphold and encourage and rebuke them, and the Holy Spirit had not yet been poured out. And the disciples were scattered and could not depend on mutual encouragement. Similarly, when Jesus speaks to the Church of Philadelphia, he promised them, this is Revelation 3.10, because you have kept my command, to persevere i will also keep you from the hour of temptation which shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth the hour of temptation describes a distinct period of extreme testing for the saints associated with called the, you know the great tribulation which of course happened uh, in the first century This is not, um, we don't hold to a futurist view of of a lot of revelation. Obviously, the the second coming predicted is in the future. But there's a lot of that that applies back then. And then number four. Now that we have some understanding of what it means to enter temptation, let us turn our attention to the means of preventing entering into temptation by our Lord. He tells us to watch and pray. These imperatives, biblically defined, comprise the whole duty for a believer's preservation from temptation. It is our great duty as Christians to be very diligent in these two injunctions so that we will not fall into temptation. If we are not diligent, we will enter in temptation, and entering into temptation is the path that can lead to that will lead to sin, backsliding and even apostasy. So Jesus knew the very dangerous nature of falling into temptation, for one of the subjects that he gave us for our daily pleading with God is lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Matthew six thirteen. So we pray that God would deliver us from the evil that accompanies our entering into temptation. Although these two imperatives are interrelated and interdependent, we'll consider each command in turn for the sake of organization and clarity. Well, let's look at the first imperative. Keep on watching. Keep on watching. As we turn our attention to the duty to watch, we need to emphasize from the start that success in this endeavor is dependent on a solid knowledge of the sacred scriptures. Only by knowing God's word can we understand what our own temptations and weaknesses are. The word of God is the mirror that shows us who we really are. Some men may have this tendency. Some may have that tendency. Some people are never tempted by drink, are never tempted by drugs. Others are. Some men are not, don't have a big problem with lust. Others are. So you need to know the word of God, be able to look at it as looking in a mirror to know yourself and what, you, what is your particular problem areas. God's word tells us our weaknesses, gives us examples of saints and apostates who have failed in this area, and warns us about circumstances in life that lead us into temptation. Therefore, when we stand on our watchtower, the Bible must be our light and lens to illuminate and focus our hearts upon all that may assail us. Solomon says, Proverbs 4.23, Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Keep it with all keepings. Keep it from getting evil as the garden is kept. Keep it from doing evil as the sea is kept at bay from the Netherlands. Keep it with the keeping of heaven above and the earth beneath, God's keeping bestoken in prayer, and man's keeping applied in watchful effort. You have to know your weaknesses. You have to know Scripture to know your weaknesses. You have to know what God wants of you. You you have to know that from Scripture. So by watching, you're not simply watching what's around you, but you're watching it through the lens of sacred Scripture. The true principle on which effectual restraint can be put upon the issues of life is indicated in verse 21. Keep my words in the midst of thine heart. And that's why it's highly recommended. Whatever your problem area is, whether you used to be a drunkard or whether you used to be a fornicator or whatever it was, write down the specific passages in Scripture that deal with that problem on cards and memorize them. And then when you're, and put them in your pocket, and when you're tempted, you're working out at the gym and some beautiful blonde comes up to you and asks you to go have a drink or something. You whip out the card and you read it, or you have it in your mind and you recite it to yourself. Our watching must be applied to a number of different areas. Number one, watching must involve a continuous, careful, and close examination of our own hearts. Many professing Christians enter into temptation because they fail to consider the weakness of their own hearts. We've already briefly considered the corruption of our natures that all Christians must contend with, the sinful flesh. It is for this reason that Solomon says, "He who trusts in his own heart is a fool." Proverbs 28:26. And of course, three: five: "Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding." Jeremiah says, 17.9, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Look at our pagan culture around us. The wicked heart justifies every sin under the sun. You want to pretend you're a woman? Oh, well, that's fine. You want to be a homo? That's fine. Everything is justified through the deceitful heart, the wicked heart that doesn't submit to the word of God. Our hearts cannot be trusted, therefore we must diligently, they must be diligently watched. John Owen says this. If a castle or fort be never so strong and well fortified, yet if there is a treacherous party within it that is ready to betray it, on every opportunity there is no preserving it from the enemy. There are traitors in our hearts ready to take part, to close, and side with every temptation, and to give "...up all to them, yea, to solicit and bribe temptations of the work, as traitors incite an enemy." So we must understand that watching against temptation always occurs on two different levels, one inward, the other outward. (coughs) Know thyself, know thy heart, know your weaknesses, know your inclinations toward evil. What was a problem in your past that that you may be tempted by? Know them. And there are a number of areas that we must carefully watch in our own hearts. First, we must carefully watch our emotions and attitudes. When Peter was told by Jesus that all the apostles would be scattered like sheep after his arrest, he boldly proclaimed, "Even if all were made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble." Matthew 26:33, Mark 14:29, Luke 22:33, John 13:37. The apostle had supreme confidence in his heart. instead of boasting he should have been praying. The Bible says when pride comes then comes shame. Proverbs 11:2. 16 Proverbs 16:18 Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. We're not to have pride. We're not to trust ourselves. We're not to be overconfident. What does that lead to? It leads to carelessness. It leads to carelessness. We don't trust ourselves. You don't enter into temptation. Why? Because you can't trust yourself. Don't put yourself in that position. Don't go into, a, you know, the old saying, don't go into a donut shop when you're on a diet. Don't go into a bar when you're, you, you, your habitual problem was being a drunkard. You obviously don't go to a strip club if you have a problem with lust. You, ha- you cannot trust yourself. We'll find ourselves saying and doing things contrary to scripture if pride is not identified and removed. How many young gifted men have entered into temptation and even embraced damnable heresies because of pride? It is pride and love of respectability that cause men to depart from the simple old gospel and embrace the latest human theological fantasy. That whole thing with a federal vision. I, that, that whole thing was based on pride. We're going to be trendy. We're going to develop some new, cool theology and make a name for ourselves. It was all full of pride, departing from the old simple gospel with a bunch of satanic garbage. It is pride that leads men away from the biblical worship of our covenant forefathers to the latest fad gimmick. Do you not see that constant need to watch our deceitful hearts? We must pay careful attention to our affections. When we become angry, we must carefully watch ourselves so that anger is not given free reign in our hearts. Paul said, be angry, do not sin, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Ephesians 4.26 The Apostle's injunction presupposes that if anger is not dealt with immediately, remember, it's not a sin to get angry. It's a sin to let that anger, because there's such a thing as justified anger, uh, develop in your heart and to where it results in something unbiblical, whether it's screaming at somebody, whether it's insulting somebody, whether it's uh, keeping that anger inside and then gossiping about them behind their back. You, know, you can get, you can get the, the, the hot wrath in your face and then, or you can get the silent treatment and then they go and gossip about, about you behind your back, which is actually even worse. And that's the acceptable sin with most Christians. The Apostle's injunction presupposes that if anger is not dealt with immediately in a biblical manner, the result will be a severe temptation to commit sin. The person who holds anger inside coddles it, nourishes it, inflames it until it boils over into an unlawful response. Gossip. Gossip. Gossip is rooted in pride and anger. Note the wisdom of Solomon on this matter. Proverbs 26:24. He who hates disguises it with his lips and lays up deceit within himself proverbs 25:28 whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls what's so sickening about gossip is people appeal to piety and holiness oh uh, I-, I want you to pray for so-and-so and we need to care about him because he's he's involved in this sin it's always disguised with piety and it's wickedness second we must carefully watch against self-deception People enter temptation when they lie to themselves regarding their condition, behavior, motives, or corruptions. Many people enter into temptation voluntarily by rationalizing away the truth of Scripture and godly counsel. People talk themselves into disobedience. They justify the sin in their mind before they commit the sin. They refuse to submit to Scripture in their mind and make excuses and justifications for sin and thus lead themselves into temptation. They talk themselves into disobedience. They enter temptation by trusting their own wisdom, their own counsel, their own reason, instead of Scripture and the biblical advice of elders. Very often it is these types of people who totally apostatize from the faith. Because they are not honest with themselves, they rush headlong into temptation and sin, all in the name of truth, love, concern, and piety. Remember Amy Grant committed adultery and left her husband? And they asked her in an interview, well, why'd you do that? Well, you've got to follow your heart. I was in love. Well, that's not in Scripture. That's something she made up. If you're married, you have to be obedient to Scripture And be loyal and faithful to your husband or wife, whether you feel like it or not. Following your heart, when the heart contradicts the word of God, is wickedness. It's wrong. And of course, J. Adams is good about this. He says, even if you don't feel like doing something, obey scripture and your emotions will eventually get in line with scripture. But you have to simply submit to what the Bible says. Note also that it is important for us to see how these areas of watchfulness are interrelated. For example, a man who has a problem with pride is often unwilling to honestly evaluate his own weak areas. Also, pride is very intimately connected to self-deception. It is pride that leads a man to falsely believe he is strong when he is weak. It is pride that convinces a man that he can go into areas where he will be tempted without danger. Pride goes before a fall because it deceives us into thinking we can defeat the enemy in our heart and the allurements of this world while violating biblical principles relating to inward corruption, temptation, and outward allurements. David goes up on the roof. There's a beautiful naked woman taking a bath. What is he doing sitting there watching? That was an act of pride. That he could think he could do that without being tempted to sin. Humility says, don't trust yourselves. Don't Ever voluntarily place yourself in a situation of temptation. Don't depend on pop psychology, Prozac, and humanistic solutions. Trust in God and his word alone. Don't ever trust yourself. Trust the word of God. Base everything on that and you'll be safe. Third, we must study ourselves and identify our weakness or problem areas. For it is these areas where a Christian is the most vulnerable to attack and and is most likely to fail. Therefore, we must watch and be acquainted with our souls, our temperament, our most common lusts and corruptions, and our spiritual weaknesses. There is a weakest point in every one of us. And remember, the strength of a rope is not to be measured in its strongest part, but its weakest part. You're going across the cavern and the rope is nice and thick and strong, but there's a little section in the middle that's been eaten away by a mouse and you're hanging by a thread. That's the section that's going to kill you. Every engineer will tell you that the strength of the ship should always be estimated, not according to its strongest, but its weakest part. For if the strain shall come upon the weakest part, and that is broken, no matter how strong the rest may be, the whole ship's going to go down. The French had the Maison line to keep out the Germans in 1940, but the Germans simply attacked through the Ardennes Forest, where there were no fortifications. Virtually no heavy armor and only small amounts of troops. And we know the result. France was defeated in six weeks. Satan's not going to attack your strong areas. He's going to attack your weak areas. He's not an idiot. He's been doing this for thousands of years. Oh, there's Joe over there. Joe has a problem with booze. Let's see if I can get Joe to go to the Christmas party at work where booze is flowing freely and everybody's getting drunk. Satan attacks the weak areas. And once we identify our weakest areas, then we must carefully watch them while we build up our spiritual fortifications in that specific area. For example, if a person has a problem with anger and lashes out against others... He should memorize passages of scripture about anger and repeatedly practice a biblical response. Some people have an excessive love of material things, and they have a problem with contentment. One of the things I like to do, I like crime shows, real crime shows, not fake ones. And uh, I see a number of situations where, for example, a woman will have a problem with... uh, material things, and it'll lead her to commit fraud and steal. And then to cover up the fraud on the stealing, she commits murder. You see, one trap leads to another. These people need to study passage about contentment, staying out of debt, and the many spiritual dangers associated with great wealth. We're not here to try to get rich. We're here to serve God and be faithful to his word and be content with what we have. Paul says, don't go into debt. Don't be a slave to the debtor. Don't go out and buy a bunch of fancy cars and and put everything on your credit card. Yeah, you need to have a mortgage, that's obvious, but you don't try to pay it off in seven years if you can. And don't have credit card debt, and don't be buying a new car every three years. If you want to buy a new car, save up and buy a new car cash. Some men are prone to laziness, irresponsibility, and self-induced poverty. These men need to study what the Bible says about work, about property, about providing a good inheritance to one's godly children and grandchildren, about taking dominion. Work hard, buy a house, own some property, develop a nice garden, beautify the property, improve the property. That's part of taking dominion. And then you can leave an inheritance to your children and your grandchildren. A very common problem with men is the lust of the eyes and temptations relating to sexual matters. And we lived in a highly sexualized culture where everything from shampoo to soap to beer is sold by you know it associated with sex such men must be very vigilant in avoiding images and sights that would stimulate lust and tempt them to sin so in a sex saturated culture we must do everything we can to guard the eye gate and the ear gate if you know if you know there's going to be naked chicks in a movie or something you shouldn't go to that movie Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to tempt yourself? And then two, we must be on guard regarding external causes of temptation. In other words, to the best of our ability, we need to control our environment. This point is exceptionally obvious, yet professing Christians violate it all the time. For example, young believers who would loudly proclaim their strong opposition to fornication in our culture often engage in the modern pagan practice of non-chaperone dating. By doing so, they are placing themselves in a situation of temptation. The results of this practice are often seen in uh, various polls of evangelicals where like 80-some percent of young evangelicals are having sex before marriage. I think it's 82, 85 percent, which is not that different than the population of the pagans around us. Now, why are they doing that? Well, they're placing themselves in a situation of temptation. Now, you may say, I'd never do that. But you get in a car with a beautiful woman and you start necking with her and you're going to do things that you normally wouldn't do because you're purposely placing yourself in a situation of temptation. The practice of having a chaperone, the practice of always meeting in public, the practice of never going to a private place where nobody's around and you can do whatever you want. You don't trust yourself. If you trust yourself in those situations, that's pride. Pride goes before a fall. And you can get a a man or a woman who is a very dedicated, professing Christian, and you put them in a situation where they're hot and heavy, and they're going to end up doing things that they're going to regret. Don't place yourself in that situation. Guarding against external temptation has a number of different aspects. First, we must watch and be alert against every circumstance that may provoke or stimulate sinful thoughts, words, or actions. If you have a prior pattern of drinking alcoholic beverages to excess, then obviously you need to avoid bars, taverns, pubs, or parties that will tempt you to drink. If you are weak in this area, you should not keep company with people who will tempt you to drink, and you certainly should not keep alcoholic beverages in your home. Now, well, it's 40 years ago, over 40 years ago, 43 years ago, I was into drugs and booze and everything, getting drunk all the time and taking all kinds of drugs. You st- and the only way I could really stay away from that and get out of that was to completely just, every old friend I had, they're gone. Immediately gone. Because they're going to stick a joint in your face. They're going to offer you drugs. They're going to offer you a line of cocaine. Now, even when I go visit relatives and I, I go jam with, like, old bandmates from the 70s, every time I go, hey, Brian, uh, They're smoking weed. Hey, you know, it's not a sin, man. If God made it, it's a natural plant. Here, have some pot. Now, fortunately, it's been so long, I'm not really tempted by that. But back in the day, I'd have to just completely stay away from those people because I would be tempted. If you have problems with sexual lust, then you must not visit magazine shops or video stores that sell or rent pornography. And, of course, nowadays, it's everywhere. This means that you don't even walk in the door. For the moment you do, you have placed yourself into temptation. Rather, for the cable channels that carry lascivious programming must be totally avoided. A lot of these cable programs, like HBO, I don't know if they still do it, but in the old days, it, you know, past two in the morning, they'd have their dirty movies on. Well, if that's a temptation, don't get HBO. Don't get it. If you don't have it, you won't be tempted. Or you at least you won't enter into temptation if you're tempted by internet pornography, which is rampant among professing Christian men, then you must either get rid of your computer or put it in a public area in your home and have excellent filters installed that access the lewd websites. It's impossible. You don't trust yourself. You stop the ungodly images before you backslide and become ensnared. A man may not be led where the sparks are flying if he knows that his breast is made out of gunpowder. If I have a heart like a bombshell ready to explode at every moment, I may well pray that I would be kept from the fire, lest my heart destroy me. You cannot trust yourselves. We are fallen creatures, even regenerate. Even, even though we're regenerate, even though we possess the Holy Spirit, you cannot trust yourself because of the sinful flesh. That's a fact. <coughs> we must imitate Job who made a covenant with his eyes not even to stare at beautiful young women. This godly patriarch was scrupulous in avoiding all the occasions of temptation. Job understood that the eyes are often the first instrument of sin. Therefore, he made an agreement with himself to avoid temptation. He planned ahead of time and made strict rules that even extended to his thought life. Okay, if you have a problem with lust, you don't go to the college campus so you can sit on the park bench in August and watch the girls walk by with their P.E. shorts that are two sizes too small. You just don't do that. It's not wise. He took steps to avoid not only just the outward act of adultery but also the impure imaginations and desires that are the roots of uncleanness. When Peter describes false teachers that plague the church, he says that they indulge the flesh in corrupt desires, having eyes full of adultery, First Peter two ten and 14. In our perverse culture, where sexual images permeate the visible, the visible media, where many women dress like prostitutes with their tattoos and their belly button rings, where sex is used to tell everything from cars to beer to shampoo, we must watch by making non-negotiable rules that help us avoid temptation. As Paul says, Romans 13:14 Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. You don't hang out with pagans. You hang out with solid godly people. So you don't enter into temptation. Easy, this is a saying we used to have back when I was in high school and it still applies to today. Easy rhymes with sleazy. You don't hang out with a bunch of whores. In pagan women. Nowadays, most pagan women are whores. Virgins are few and far between. Easy rhymes with sleazy. Use your wisdom. We must put on Christ in our everyday life and do everything we can to deprive sin of an opportunity. Second, we must be on guard against keeping company with anyone who would lead us into temptation. The Bible repeatedly warns us that evil company, that is, making friends and hanging out with pagans or even hypocritical Christians, is a corrupting force on the covenant people. If This guy's a professing Christian, and you go over to his apartment, he's snorting coke and smoking pot, and he's got a pagan girlfriend coming over to have sex with later, that's somebody you don't want to be hanging out with. Paul says not even to eat lunch with such a person. They're obviously Deceived. Paul says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Keeping company with evil companions has a corrupting influence on our attitudes and behavior. Interestingly, the Apostles' injunction comes in the middle of an argument against professing Christians who are denying the resurrection from the dead. Even fellowshipping with people who have heretical doctrine can have dire consequences. Many, many years ago, this is like 30 years ago, I knew of a pastor who lived in Colorado and his wife was hanging out at the gym. She lost weight. She got really hot. Hanging out at the gym, talking to all these pagan men at the gym. Now, she should have gone to the gym with her husband. She shouldn't have gone by herself. And what she did, she ran off with one of the guys from the gym and divorced her husband. She entered into temptation. All these hot young guys, were pagans, are complimenting her and asking her out to lunch and all this, and she gave in. Therefore, Paul warned the Ephesian elders to watch out for false teachers. For among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Acts 20, 30 to 31. So this applies to heresy, which, of course, Paul in, uh, I think it's Galatians, calls heresy a sin of the flesh. You know, today we're told, well, is not important. People are important. We don't care about doctrine. But Paul says heresy, he puts it right up there with fornication and adultery. It's a sin of the flesh. So you've got to be on guard against who you hang out with as far as doctrine goes as well. You don't hang out and make friends and fellowship with people who are heretics. You just don't do it. You know, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Pelagians, Armenians, Semi-Pelagians, Federal Visionists, In 2 Corinthians, Paul argues that separating ourselves from evil involves separating ourselves from the heathen and their influences. This is uh, 1 Corinthians 6.4. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what communion has light with darkness? And of course, he's referring to Leviticus 19.19-22.10. 19, 19 to 10. The apostle is not saying that we should enter a monastery or avoid all interaction with the heathen. If you work, you have to be in, interact with the heathen. Every job I've ever had, I was surrounded by pagans. But we should not make them yoke fellows, companions, or close friends. If we want to avoid entering into temptation, we must not form a business partnership with the heathen, join clubs or associations with them, join with them in a pragmatic manner to fight against abortion. Romanists, Unitarians, Mormons. We must not attend heretical churches. Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Armenian, dispensational. And to do so is to deliberately place oneself in harm's way. As Solomon says, Proverbs 24, 1-2, Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them, for their heart devises violence and their lips talk of troublemaking. Proverbs 20, verse 19, He who goes about as a tailbearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. Don't associate with people who gossip and trash people behind their backs. Now, obviously, if you're 70 years old and you're a rock-solid Christian and you're in an Armenian church, it's, not, it's going to be like pebbles bouncing off granite. But some young Christ, professing Christian going into some church hearing all kinds of crazy heresy. I've seen a lot of people fall away. I've seen people who were theonomists who joined the Roman Catholic Church. I've seen people who were Steelites who joined the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Catholic Church. I've seen Presbyterians join the Roman Catholic Church. Be careful, watch, and pray. Someone tells us how companionship with the wicked can lead to the three decrees of departure from God. Verses 1-2 to Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly nor stands in the path of sinners nor sits in the seat of the scornful but his delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he meditates day and night. Note that the person is corrupted by accepting the advice of unbelievers. Then the rebellion progresses as that person now leads a lifestyle in accord with the heathen. Then finally they become the most obstinate and scandalous of sinners. They are scoffers. Francis Schaefer's son, Frankie Schaefer, first started having doubts about the Reformed faith, and then he, become, he joined the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so he sat himself down with a bunch of heretics. And then, of course, from the Eastern Orthodox Church, he became a political liberal, uh, pro-abortion, you name it. He followed that path of digression into total apostasy and wickedness. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't trust yourself. They end up mocking the truth in the way of righteousness. They trample the cross underfoot as apostates. How many Christian parents have put their children into temptation by putting them into a state school or a secular university? The rate of apostasy for the children of evangelical. Evangelicals in America is over 70%. It's shocking, according to a poll by Gallup. So many go apostate in high school, and then a whole bunch more go apostate in pagan college, where they're taught how great fornication is and how great homosexuality is, and how Christianity is a myth. And they all make fun of the flood of Noah, and they all make fun of the Genesis account because they're fools, they're idiots. We must watch against temptation if we want to persevere. He who walks with the wise will be wise. But the companion of fools shall be destroyed. Proverbs 13.20. I think we're going to stop there. I've got enough. We'll come back in the afternoon and and, uh, go through this. Well, let me do one more. Third, we must watch for providential conditions beyond our control and prepare our hearts to meet them. There are a number of things in life that are beyond our control that may lead us into temptation, such as calamity, financial catastrophe, disease, persecution, unexpected riches, a spouse who turns out to be an ungodly malcontent, a wicked Christ-hating boss, and so on. When Christ commanded the disciples to watch and pray, the immediate context suggests that they were to watch even though the coming events were outside their sphere of influence. That is why watching is frequently linked to prayer. You don't always know what's going to happen. We pray, if it is God's will that these lines of temptation would be removed, but we also pray that we we must, if we must endure such trials, we would be given the grace to endure them, the power to endure them, the wisdom to endure them. The fact that Jesus told the disciples to watch under their uncontrolled. Uh, their uncontrollable circumstances means that watching also has the sense of being spiritually prepared to deal with all situations that may arise. And Paul used a similar term in 1 Corinthians. Watch. This is 16 13. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Here, watching is coupled with standing fast. Belief in belief of true Christian doctrine. Be immovable. Stand on the word of God. Let that be your foundation. Let that be your solid rock to stand upon. So when the waves come and beat against the house, you will stand firm. I mean, I know people, I know people that have, they've changed their doctrinal positions eight times in the past 20 years. I know a guy who used to be a psalm-singing solid Calvinist who now believes in uh, universalism. He's a total heretic, full preterist, universalist. Total heretic. His wife converted to Mormonism. Total heretic. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul couples watchfulness with spiritual and ethical sobriety or wakefulness. Five, six, We are not of the night nor of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. Also, the many parables and passages in Scripture that teach watchfulness or preparedness for the second coming of Christ essentially teach us to be ready by being faithful to the Word of God. Those who are not watching are not doing the work of the master, but rather are sleeping. Mark 13:34 to 37, Matthew 24:42 and following, 25:13, 1st Thessalonians 5:6, Revelation 3:3 3, 3 and 16:5, etc. You don't want the master returning. And find you doing something you're not supposed to be doing. The virgins who didn't have their lamps, they didn't have the right amount of oil, they didn't prepare. Now, given all these passages, the watching involves, involved for events beyond our control is more offensive than defensive. It obvi- obviously involves a saturation of our minds with Scripture and also a habitual practice of obedience to what the Bible requires. Our Lord put it best with this illustration of the two builders and the two different foundations. He says, this is from uh, Matthew 7, 24 to 27. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will like him to a wise man who built his house on the rock, and the rain descended, the floods came, and the wind blew, and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them it well, be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain descended, the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell and great was its fall. You see that flooding in uh, Yellowstone National Park where the rivers come and they wash away the bank and you see the whole house tumble into the river and go downstream. Well, if that house was on a big giant rock sticking up 50 feet, it wouldn't happen given all this, there is simply no substitute for reading, studying, memorizing, meditating upon, and obeying the Holy Scriptures. Put it into practice. Make it habitual. The main reason that many professing Christians in America wilt and fall under pressure is that they don't know the Scriptures, Christian doctrine, or biblical ethics. Beloved, the storms are coming, so watch and pray. Be ready. We live in a totally wicked culture One of the most popular things on YouTube is all these atheists just mocking. And, of course, comedians, too. They mock the Bible. They mock Noah's Ark. They mock the creation account. They make fun of it. That Ricky Gervais guy has all this stuff against the Bible. Just simply mocking it. Why? Because he likes to sin. He's a wicked piece of excrement. Is he funny? Yeah. He can be very funny. But that's not going to help him on the Day of Judgment. He's not going to be able to tell God a joke and get out of going to hell. Watch. Pray. We're going to take a break. But uh, this is important stuff. We all need to review this. Know your weak areas. Some people are gluttons. Some people are have a, you know, they really like drink. Other people, like me, yeah, you could, I couldn't care less. I don't even like the feeling of alcohol at all. But some people, it's just, you know, put a six-pack of beer in the house and you go, you, you come back and it's gone The guy stay at my house I had a bunch of beer really good quality beer I come back it's all gone he drank it in like three days know your weaknesses let us pray Father we thank you for this incredible teaching of our Lord right before he was arrested we know its importance we know that most people who profess Christ will fall away and apostatize and go to hell Oh, Lord, we beg you, Lord, the power of your Holy Spirit to control our hearts and bend them to your will. Cause us to love your holy word, to place it in our heart, and to habitually obey it. Yes, we do sin. Cause us to recognize when we sin, when we do fall, and to repent, to die daily, and confess our sins before you, and then get back up and dust ourselves off and continue to serve your kingdom. Help us be obedient. Give us a desire to learn your holy word so that we will do everything in accordance with it. In Jesus' name, amen.